Thanks for listening to Embedded. We'd like to better understand who's listening to the show and how you're using podcasts. So to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you complete a short, anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. Podcast survey is all one word. It takes less than 10 minutes to do the survey and really helps support the show. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. There's this reality TV show in Iraq that airs every Friday night on state TV. It's called In the Grip of the Law. And in a recent episode, we see two masked men wearing military uniforms dragging another man down the street. This man is handcuffed, he's wearing an orange jumpsuit. He's been blindfolded and brought to this scene in a blocked-off street in Mosul. This is Ben Taub. He reported on this show for The New Yorker. He's kneeling on the ground. They take off the blindfold. There's men behind him carrying their weapons. And it looks like the lead-up to a street execution. The man kneeling on the ground is named Muafak Ahmad Shihab. He is accused of being an ISIS. He confesses that he helped the group and that he was there one day when ISIS executed five men. He says one of the executioners was his son. The idea of this TV show is to let people see accused ISIS members get a taste of their own medicine. So, on the left side of the screen, we see actual footage of this ISIS execution. It's an ISIS propaganda video. Five men in orange jumpsuits are kneeling on the ground on this same street and then are shot and killed. You can see it, but you can't hear it. And on the right side of the screen is Muafak Ahmed Shihab, kneeling in exactly the same way. They literally copied the ISIS video and consciously did so. Muafak says he regrets what he did. And then the host of the show says, you will get your punishment. Most of us know how the Islamic State started and the terrible things it did. In our latest episodes, we're reporting on how it ends. ISIS has been defeated, or at least driven out of its territory. But there are still all these people who ISIS left behind and the troubling question of what to do with them. In our last episode, we talked about a man who left Canada to join ISIS and is now being held in a part of Syria where, for a lot of reasons, he can't be put on trial. But he also can't be sent home. ISIS existed in two countries, Syria and Iraq. So today, we'll be talking about Iraq, the place where ISIS started, and how it deals with people who are accused of affiliation with this group. Human rights groups say it looks a lot like revenge, not justice. And that could be creating the next ISIS. That's our show today, after this break.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Okay, we're back. And we're talking about this Iraqi reality TV show that's all about punishing suspected ISIS members. This show has millions of viewers. It airs on Friday evenings in in Iraq on primetime, and it's on state television. So this is organized with the security services. They're heavily involved in selecting participants. And they claim that this shows that the public can trust in the security apparatus and the judicial system. These men are confessing on camera, and therefore people should believe that the people who are being arrested are all criminals because, look, he says he is a criminal. Ben Taub actually went to the Iraqi TV studio while they were editing the episode I was talking about in the beginning. And he says there's another problem with it. The host of the show says, Muafak Ahmed Shihab, the man who's kneeling on the ground confessing that he helped ISIS, was there on the day of the actual ISIS execution. But Ben says the man on the video from that day, who they say is Muafak Ahmed Shihab, does not look like Muafak Ahmed Jihab. The man in the ISIS video had a full head of white hair, and Muafak was mostly bald, and his hair was black, uh, what little he had, except for a little bit of gray in his beard. It's not just that they kind of don't resemble each other. It sounds like they don't look not like each other at, at all. It, it just was, I was incredulous. Ben later asked the host about this, and the host deflected the question about mistaken identity. And he was defensive. These people have done wrong, he told Ben, and now our security forces are doing their jobs and bringing them to justice. Muafak Ahmed Shihab was not executed on TV, but he has already been found guilty of being an ISIS. And that means he could be sentenced to death by hanging. This reality show is just one example of how Iraq is dealing with what are at least 20,000 people in the country suspected of having something to do with ISIS. Unlike the part of Syria where we reported our last episode, Iraq has a working judiciary, courts and judges and lawyers. And Iraqis clearly want some kind of resolution after five years of terror attacks in ruined cities. And it's in their government's interest to say, don't worry, we got this. So now, every weekday, there are these hearings for terrorism suspects who've been charged as guilty and sent to a panel of three judges. Their job is to decide whether they agree with a guilty charge and give out sentences. On some days, these judges see as many as 20 to 25 terrorism suspects. Ben went to see what happens in these hearings in a place called Courtroom 2. There were dozens of men awaiting trial, crammed on a wooden bench and on the floor, sweaty, sick and injured, covered in scabies, their joints twisted and their bones cracked. 
Ben says access to these people, these hearings, is surprisingly open. Any Iraqi citizen can walk in. But the thing is, the people who might be most interested in what happens don't walk in. The family members of these men do not go because they are terrified that if they appear in the vicinity of the courtroom, they could be detained and arrested themselves simply by association. The accused are entitled to have their own defense lawyers, but that's actually really rare because even the lawyers are scared to be affiliated with ISIS. Especially anyone who may be guilty um, because a lot of defense lawyers have been arrested and some have been sentenced to death themselves for, by affiliation. So defense lawyers don't want to touch a case unless they are sure that this is an innocent man. So with so few private defense lawyers taking cases... There are a couple of public defender-type lawyers who are provided by the court, and they just sit there in court and wait to be called. And they have no idea who they're representing. They have no files on the person. And when someone says, no, I don't have a lawyer, one of them pops up and says, I'll represent him. Hmm. And the judge says, okay, Hussein, you're representing him. So he'll spontaneously craft a defense, which really means that he's listened for the two minutes that the trial has happened uh, when the suspect said, no, I didn't do this. They mixed up my name with someone else, and I was tortured into falsely confessing to crimes I didn't commit. And look at my body. My you know, arms and legs have been broken by the security services. I've clearly been tortured, but they've denied me a medical exam and so on. Hmm. And so the defense lawyer is listening to this, and he stands up and he says, well, he says he's the wrong guy. He says that he was tortured in custody. And so we ask for leniency in sentencing, not even asking for, you know, him to be let go, but just 15 to 25 years instead of sentenced to death. Meanwhile, as they're speaking, there's three judges sitting in the panel, and they're just completely ignoring the defense. They're cracking jokes and signing documents, beckoning their assistants to come and collect folders from the bench. The lead judge was yawning during a number of these defense speeches uh, and just completely ignoring what they were had to say. Because these are the final hearings in a multi-hearing process, the only evidence that is presented is a suspect's confession. Confessions that were taken on the battlefield or in prison, and sometimes that were elicited through torture. Often they take your thumbprint onto this confession that you haven't seen while you're blindfolded, and it says something to the effect of, you know, yes, I joined ISIS and I carried a weapon, and therefore, you know, and I confessed this on this date, right? And the judge looks at that and says, well, you confessed. And he says, well, I was tortured. And he says, well... You confessed, man. You confessed. Ben later went to talk to a former judge who actually presided over Saddam Hussein's trial. He's now a defense lawyer named Munir Haddad. And Ben asked Haddad if defense lawyers ever question the fact that there's no other evidence in these hearings or that the outcomes seemed so certain ahead of time. And then Haddad laughed. He says, we're not in America It is not possible to argue with the judge, because if you do, he'll just take it out on your client. As a lawyer, you just have to accept the humiliation. (sighs) This is a man who presided over the trial of Saddam Hussein, saying, if I stand up to a judge and say, can you please listen to me while I'm presenting a defense, then he'll take it out on my client and sentence him to death because I stood up to challenge him. 
This is partly the culture of the Iraqi judicial system, like you don't question your superiors in public. But it raises some bigger questions, too. How do you achieve justice when you know unspeakable acts have been committed, but real evidence is so hard to get? And a lot of these terrible things happened on a battlefield. I mean, it's not impossible, right? There was Nuremberg, the South African truth and reconciliation process, convictions of war criminals in the Balkans. But it's also not fast. It takes a lot of time. In the case of ISIS, the role of the Iraqi courts is particularly complicated. How do you give this war-weary country the quick solution it wants? Ben put this to the judge-turned-defense lawyer, Munir Haddad. So I asked Haddad whether, in his role as a former judge too, he believed that Iraqi judges see their role as kind of meeting out a cosmic justice when the truth lies beyond the kinds of evidence that can possibly be collected from an active war zone. And he just kind of brushed it off and said, you know, ISIS has so many victims, there have to be convictions. And that's the stance that I heard, too, from the spokesman at the Ministry of Justice. He said, you know, human rights groups are focusing on the rights of suspects, but what about the rights of victims and their families? Hmm. We have had thousands of terrorist attacks in Iraq. There's enormous public pressure on the judicial authorities. He goes, you know, the whole world obsessed over 9-11. We cried for your innocent deaths. And we've had a death toll that's exceeded that by a factor of 100, and we don't get the sympathy from you in America or from the international community. We are fighting terrorists every day on behalf of the rest of the world, and no one cares about our suffering. We'll be back after this break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. Then ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com embedded. Welcome to the 21st century. Do you see Jesus in the burnt toast? Do you realize that literally there's a bucket of condoms by the exit? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? We cannot just uh, say stop, I want to get off. Invisibilia, season five. No easy answers, just the right questions. Okay, we're back with reporter Ben Taub from The New Yorker. And one of the things I wanted to ask him is... If there are something like 20 to 25 terrorism suspects being sentenced every day in Iraq, how many total suspects have been convicted? I think it's safe to say that thousands of men and boys have been convicted of ISIS affiliation and hundreds have already been hanged. I talked to two researchers who also follow the Iraqi judicial system and who've sat in on some of these hearings. And while the exact numbers are hard to come by, They say about a third of the total suspects who make it to court are given the death penalty. Others are given life sentences, which in Iraq is 20 years, and some people are acquitted. But some suspects don't even live long enough to make it to court. People die for health reasons in detention, Ben was told. It's overcrowded, they suffocate in the heat, there's disease. 
And then there's this. I spoke to a senior Iraqi intelligence official, and he said that hundreds more people have been killed during interrogations. Um, and when that happens, the Ministry of Health officials come in and classify the cause of death as unknown or heart attack, and then they dispose of the corpse. Hmm. He described this scene where not long ago he was looking on as a group of his own subordinates beat a Saudi fighter with iron bars. They knew this was an ISIS guy, no question about it. And it was in an ad hoc detention center near Mosul. And the fighter was taunting his interrogators, saying that if he recovered, he would return to the battlefield and fight them again. So they broke his legs and his arms, and they threw cinder blocks onto his back. And the senior intelligence official who's watching the scene said to me, you know, who knows exactly when he died, but he wanted to become a martyr, and so the interrogators obliged. I asked whether the Iraqi government notifies foreign embassies when its intelligence officers kill their citizens, like this Saudi guy. And he said, we do not tell their governments what happens to them, and their governments do not ask. Ben's talking about foreigners who end up in the Iraqi system, namely fighters from other Arab countries like Saudi Arabia. But here's the thing. The vast majority of the suspects in this system are Iraqi. And Iraqi law considers anyone who is affiliated with ISIS to be a terrorist. Which is a problem in a place where some people were forced to join or help the group. As a state employee, as a teacher, say, when ISIS came to town and told you that if you didn't show up to work and keep teaching but their curriculum, you would be killed, and you continued in your job as a teacher or as, you know, working for the agriculture ministry, but now it's the ISIS agriculture ministry, suddenly your responsibilities are to the Islamic State. And because it was a state-building project and they had so many bureaucrats involved, all of those bureaucrats are now implicated in having been a part of a sectarian criminal enterprise. And so if you continued in your job, you were now the ISIS administrator for this or that, simply because you kept going to work under pain of death, you are as complicit as the guy who walked into your office and pointed a gun in your face and said, if you don't show up, I'm going to kill you. What you're saying is that with the large, large, large majority of the people who are accused of being part of ISIS, that distinction matters absolutely none. Yeah. I mean, this is a group that conscripted local bureaucrats. The first thing it did when it took over Mosul was, you know, take over the banks, take over the police offices, intelligence offices. And if you're a local bureaucrat or a doctor or a teacher, you're conscripted on pain of death. And so now anyone with a perceived connection to ISIS, however tenuous or unclear, is being killed or cast out of society. So many people had no choice but to do what they, or felt like they had no choice but to do what they did, right? It's not like you can just, I'll just leave Mosul, we'll just go to Paris instead of do what these guys tell me to do. Hundreds of thousands of people are now being persecuted by their own liberators. So Iraq has at least 20,000 people in custody on suspicion of some affiliation with ISIS. And their families are being rounded up into these detention camps. Ben met women in these camps who were living under miserable conditions. One tried to divorce her ISIS husband after he ran off and married another woman. 
Another was considered an ISIS wife, even though her husband only had brothers who were in ISIS. And now... They have no freedom of movement. They're denied access to documents. Many of the children were born into the caliphate, so they have ISIS birth certificates. And Iraqi government won't recognize or replace those birth certificates. So they're effectively rendering these children stateless within their own state. They are frequently denied food, shelter, and medical care by NGO workers, Iraqi NGO workers. They are often sexually assaulted or threatened with rape by the men and militias who are guarding the camps, you know, ostensibly protecting them. You have cases where tents are being burned down. Mm -hmm. You have cases where women who have been raped by the camp guards are discarding their their babies in the camp, you know, after they're born, mm. um, or trying to carry out secret abortions and then suffering medical complications and dying inside these tents. The camp conditions are the sort of building blocks for the next version of ISIS. And that's something that the Iraqi government is very well aware of as well, but is doing almost nothing to address. What Ben is saying here is, how ISIS ends in Iraq could actually be the beginning of a new and very big problem. And that problem would look a lot like how ISIS got started in the first place. Disaffected, angry men and women, angry at their government, angry at U.S. occupiers, some of these people were detained in U.S. prisons, taking up a fight against what they saw as injustice. I spoke to women who have been sort of treated as ISIS wives because their male relatives were mistakenly arrested. So you had guys who weren't in ISIS who then get arrested in the fashion we described and then thrown into this horrible judicial system or detention and interrogation system. And then the women and children are considered, well, your your husband or your father is an ISIS suspect who's just been convicted on terrorism charges that we tortured him into confessing to. So therefore, you're an ISIS wife. Right. And all of a sudden, that's your lot in life because your male relative got arrested by mistake. And so you are separated from society, segregated, and forced into living in fear in a detention camp with barbed wire on the perimeter with no documents that would allow you to return home. And guess how you're going to feel going forward? And guess how your kids are going to feel going forward? Like, how are you going to feel towards your government, right? And how are you going to feel when another militant group shows up and says... This government is BS. We got to fight them. We got to take them down. Who are you going to sympathize with? And that's happened before. Like this is almost all of this is worse than before, but this is exactly the same patterns as before. I spoke to some of these women who, you know, described to me how their husbands did join ISIS. And in more than one case, it was that in 2011 or 9 or 10, the um, Iraqi security forces or some sectarian militia came in, arrested their husband tortured him, said that you're a terrorist, he wasn't. Then when he was released, hated the government. Then the terrorist group showed up and he said, great, I'm going to join it now. Yeah. They said I was a terrorist before. Now it looks like we have a chance of protecting ourselves. Here are the men with guns who are on our side. Everyone recognizes that this is setting the stage for the next version of the group and the group's resurgence.
Ben Taub's story for The New Yorker is called Shallow Graves. It won a National Magazine Award. Today's episode was produced by Tom Dreisbach. It was edited by Chris Benderev, Eric Menel, and Lisa Pollack, with help from Jaina Raff, Neil Carruth, and Mark Mehmet. Thanks also to Belkis Willie with Human Rights Watch and Mara Revkin with Yale University. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. In our next episode, a man spends his days listening to recordings of his kids. Their mother took them to Syria when she joined ISIS, and now the kids are missing. Okay, but bye bye, Appa. Bye bye, Appa. I love you. I miss you. Miss you, Appa. Can you imagine hearing these things, seeing all the airstrike bombing, and somebody deciding that I will never be there. I will never be there. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. And thanks.